Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. Thank you for joining us for this sermon. You can find all of our sermons at holycommunion.net and our Facebook, YouTube, and podcast channels. Consider hitting like or subscribe. Consider sharing this sermon with others. It helps us to reach more people like you. We are so thankful to those who support our ministry. You can give today at holycommunion.net backslash give. In the name of the one living and true God, amen. Please be seated. Today is Trinity Sunday, and those of you who are longtime Episcopalians may be confused to see the rector in the pulpit. It's a long-time joke that rectors like to assign Trinity Sunday to some unexpecting junior associate or seminarian. Josephine, you're getting off easy. This is often a Sunday where we take one of the most complicated doctrines in the whole of Christendom and hand it to a young, young person in ordination process or a younger ordained person and see what they do with it. I hope not to give a long-winded sermon about complicated doctrine this morning. You may be used to saying, I don't understand the Trinity. The math doesn't add up. Three and one and one and three. How does that work? Some year, if I'm thinking ahead, I really should invite our rabbi-in-residence, Rory Picker-Niece, to preach Trinity Sunday. I would love to hear a real monotheist wrestle with this concept. But since Rory isn't here this morning, I want to take a different tack. I want to talk about what the Trinity teaches us about power. What the Trinity teaches us about power. And talking about the Trinity tends to lend itself to other statements we make about God. One of which is that God is almighty or all-powerful. And when we talk about God this way, how often do we stop and question what we mean by power. Does God's power look like human power? Our world in these days is rife with examples of power abused. A, a number of you I know watched the public hearings which started this week examining the role of white power organizations and the former president in the Capitol riot. Beyond our borders, we have seen power concentrate in a smaller number of hands in terrifying ways in recent days. Autocrats starting wars, presidents in Central America acting like dictators, using public health decrees and states of emergency to lock up political opposition. The right use of power has become a pressing concern. And I wonder whether for Christians, the Trinity might function as a corrective. The Trinity teaches us that God is a community of persons. And the early church insisted on a truth about power that surprised. God in Trinity is a community of radical equality. God the Father is not more powerful than God the Son. God the Spirit, who we don't fully comprehend, is just as powerful, just as important. The persons of the Trinity are all co-equal. Power, real power then, is relational. God's power is always exercised in community. Now, this may be a strange way for a church leader to talk about power. And the church can be pretty top-down. 
And the doctrine of the Trinity was settled at the same time that the church was inventing the idea of hierarchy. They literally coined the term in the same centuries that they were writing the creeds about the Trinity. And the word hierarchy was originally used to describe the ranks of angels and the structures of the church. Power came down from on high. And in these early centuries, bishops were becoming more powerful. And certain bishops in certain influential cities were gaining titles like patriarch and metropolitan and eventually even archbishop and pope. That all comes from this era. We mapped a structure of power and said it was ordained by God. But in those same years, while the church was inventing hierarchy, at the same time, theologians taught something fascinating about God. The Trinity looks like it should be a hierarchy. A lot of the art even looks that way. God the Father up on top, God the Son second, and honestly, who knows about the Spirit? I've been using traditional language around gender, and I'll say something more about gender in just a moment. The Trinity looks like it should be a hierarchy, a clear structure of power, but the earliest theologians held that in the Trinity, all three persons are equal. Even though we call one Father, one Son, one Ghost or Spirit, all three are equally, fully God. So there's a tension in church. The church insists that the heart of God is equity, and we keep building hierarchies. We keep organizing and blessing top-down power, even Episcopalians who somewhat pattern our church governance on the U.S. Constitution with elections and co-equal houses of legislative bodies, we love a hierarchy. We dress priests in fancy clothes, bishops even fancier. We like to know who is on top. Now, if you're not in the church professionally, you don't get off easy. The church may have invented hierarchy, but the idea caught on fast. Universities compete with the church around questions of odd titles and silly dress. I know we sometimes laugh at the outfits I have to wear on Sundays, but go to a graduation this season and you'll find even sillier clothes on a faculty member. We likewise will set up these formal hierarchies in government, in business. We set up a lot of top-down power, don't we? We set up less formal hierarchies as well in society, in schools, among friends. We tend to know the pecking order, don't we? And we imbue even these informal hierarchies with a sort of spiritual power, like they're immutable, permanent, ordained. Now, they may not have had the word, but in Jesus' time, rank and station mattered deeply. Think of all the characters we meet in the Gospels. Emperors, centurions, governors, high priests, tetrarchs, kings. But also in the Gospels, notice, the people with whom Jesus spent most of his time ranked at the very bottom. Jesus shared a table with shepherds, fisherfolk, servants, lepers, Samaritans, sinners. And Jesus balked at the power systems of the day. Jesus confounded the structures of power over others. Jesus practiced relational power, power with, 
the marginalized, the outsider, the outcast. The Trinity takes something of Jesus' exercise of power, Jesus' community ethic, into the heart of God. Friends, what if the best image of God is a community living in perfect equity? What if we stopped drawing pictures of an old white bearded man on a throne next to a younger white bearded man on a throne and their pet bird sometimes on a throne? What if we re-imaged God to look less like our systems of power and more like the co-equality of the Trinity? What if we believe that God's power is always related to God's love? God is almighty precisely because God is all-loving. What would that mean about power? If we want that to be true, how do we re-image God? The theologian Christina Cleveland has gotten into my head lately with her latest book, God is a Black Woman. She believes we need this re-imaging, this re-imagining. She calls the default inherited cultural image white male God. All one word, no spaces, no capitalization, just white male God. And she asks what happens if instead we look for God as black and feminine. Listen to some words she wrote. Unlike white male God, who is all about head knowledge and the mastery of information, she requires full-bodied change. Since white male God lives in the realm of the head, he wants us to stay there, too. He wants us to consume books about the sacred black feminine, talk about her and know things about her, because that will distract us from actually being transformed by her. He knows she's been coming for him for centuries, and he's desperate to prevent us from joining the hunt. We've inherited a flawed picture of God made in the images of human systems of power. What happens if we open ourselves to encountering God in ways we didn't think we had permission? What if we go search for a God who isn't some old white man in the sky? Cleveland's work has me rethinking questions of power. Often in seminary, they teach you that the oldest theological question goes something like this. If God is all-powerful and all-good, why is there suffering? Disease, natural disaster, even war become questions of God's power. How could God allow this to happen? And lately, I've been thinking how much that question is the kind of question you would ask of a god who looks like some white sky king. And what if power doesn't work the way we thought? What if when we say God is all-powerful, we don't mean that God dictates every movement of every creature? How do we find a god who looks less like Pharaoh— and more like the midwives in the beginning of Exodus, who find a way to save children's lives even when it seems politically impossible. Then, being all-powerful, it means that even when the circumstances seem hopeless, God always has room to act.
What if sometimes, often, God's action is simply to show up and to weep with us? Then God's power looks less like the power white men imagine for themselves, power over others. God's power is more like the power that black women have always held to make a way out of no way. I have images of God on the mind this week in part because I'm thinking about this new window in our chapel. We just blessed it on Tuesday. And the hope is eventually all of these clear glass windows in the chapel are going to be filled in with windows like this. We've got a little bit more money to raise to fill in the gaps. But importantly, this is the first stained glass in our history as a congregation showing biblical characters, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, as black. And the rest of the planned windows will also feature people of color in biblical roles. Imagery matters, in part because it talks about who has a claim on the story. I want to tell you about the title that the artist Kababi, who put together this window, the title Kababi gave to the window. You see, left up to me, the window, which depicts Easter morning in the garden, it would probably have simply been called the resurrection. As if the window were just playing with an idea. Kababi, who has a better sense of the stakes, named the work Rise Up. Rise Up. Because the stories we read in this church aren't just ancient stories. They're not just ideas to debate. Rise up, because the revolution continues. The work of God is your work now. That's why Mary is heading out of the last frame to go tell the other disciples, Jesus is risen. The work goes on. Rise up, because when you encounter God in ways that challenge the status quo, you need to pray with your feet and work for change. Rise up because you are the disciples of your generation. The Trinity doesn't have to be just some idea we talk about, some ancient teaching we assign to a seminarian once a year to preach. God is more than an idea. God is alive and moving. The Trinity stands ready to confound those who think they already know what God looks like and how divine power works. When the world all seems too much, remember, our faith teaches that at the heart of all creation is a community of perfect equity. God can be found, gathered around a table, ready to work for change. Amen.